Okay, chapter seven is anatomy, physiology, and medical terminology. And uh, heads up, our medical terminology intro is very, very brief. It's mainly one or two slides. Medical terminology, if you want to learn more about medical terminology, there is a whole semester class over midterm. And in fact, if you're degree seeking in EMS, you do have to take midterm. We're just going to briefly talk about it. Anatomy, physiology, more importantly than that is pathophysiology, which we'll cover in chapter eight, are very vital concepts to understand. And understanding physiology, pathophysiology, is going to help you understand these disease processes better, why we see the signs and symptoms we see, etc. So this is vital that we grasp these next two chapters. So intro, knowledge of the human body is required to assess and care for patients. So some definitions, anatomy is defined as or refers to how the body is made, where bones are located in the body, where organs are located in the body, what the bones are made of, et cetera. Physiology refers to how the body works. And medical terminology allows for concise communication amongst healthcare professionals that understand the language. So anatomical, let me make sure I'm recording real quick, anatomical terms. So when we start talking about these anatomical terms, they tend to be in reference to other body parts, et cetera. So in order for us to understand some of these anatomical terms, we must first understand what the anatomical position is. So the anatomical position is a patient that is standing and facing forward, and their arms are at their side, and their palms are facing forward as well. So that's your anatomical position. So the palms facing forward is important for us to understand, because if we're talking about the front of the forearm or the back of the forearm, we don't use those terms. I will talk about that. But we need to know which part of the forearm we're talking about, anterior, front, or posterior, backside. And again, that's all in reference to the anatomical position. Make sense? Okay. So positions of the body. And again, we've already talked about some of these. So supine is face up. And again, most patients that we transport, especially unconscious patients, trauma patients, we transport them supine, face up, laying on their back. You do need to know these terms. And this just requires reputation, repetition, studying, memorizing. The opposite of supine, so supine's on their back, prone is face down on their stomach. And what's one thing that we, when we talk about prone, what's one thing we do or don't do? Somebody unmute yourself. You don't load um, anyone up on like a stretcher or something. Right. Never place or restrain a patient prone. Lateral recumbent is on their side. It can be the left lateral recumbent or the right lateral recumbent, depending on what side they're laying on. It's also known as the recovery position. 
We also have Fowler's position, which is a patient on their back with their upper body elevated 45 to 60 degrees. So their lower body is still on the stretcher, but their head is going to be elevated up to 60 degrees. Most conscious medical patients that we transport, we transport in a Fowler's position, laying on the stretcher, but they're sitting upright. So that's Fowler's. And also have semi-Fowlers, which is just like Fowlers, but that's with the head only slightly elevated up to less than, sorry, 45 degrees of angle. So again, very common when we transport head injury patients, stroke patients in a semi-Fowlers position with the head only slightly elevated. We mentioned Trendelenburg positions on their back with their legs elevated higher than the head and the body on an inclined plane. So true Trendelenburg is their head is down here, their feet's up here. The entire body is at a angle. Our stretchers cannot do a true Trendelenburg. Now, hospital beds can, but our stretchers can't. We, so what we use is actually a shock position, which is the body's flat, just the feet are elevated. However, in EMS, shock position and Trendelenburg are interchangeable, used interchangeably. So if somebody, a preceptor tells you to put the patient in Trendelenburg, they really mean put them in shock position, just elevate the feet. And there's some pictures of these. So there is Sapan. Again, Sapan is laying on their back. There's prone. We find the patient prone. And that's also oftentimes we document how we find our patients as well. So patient laying supine on the ground, we need to document that. Patient was laying prone on the ground. We need to document that. Patient was ambulating on scene, walking around on scene. We need to document that. There's your left lateral recumbent position laying on their left side. And again, if they were laying on their right side, it'd be the right uh, recumbent position. Fowler's position, so they're laying on the stretcher. We just have the head of the stretcher elevated above 45 degrees. That's Fowler's. And again, most conscious medical patients, this is how we transport them right here in a Fowler's. There is a true Trendelenburg. So again, the entire body is at an angle with the head being the lowest part of the body. And again, the purpose of that is to drain blood from these upper extremities down into their torso, bottle organs, and into their brain to make sure that that brain is getting perfused. And again, our stretchers obviously cannot do this in the back of a truck. So we use a modified Trendelenburg, again, shock position. And again, those terms are pretty much used interchangeably, though, in EMS. So the body is laying flat, just the feet are elevated. And every EMS stretcher that I've ever seen has a locking position that allows us to do this. Our stretchers are designed to allow us to put a patient into a shock position. <clears throat> also have anatomical terms, or that's what we're talking about, anatomical planes or planes of body. These are imaginary divisions that serve as reference points for the patient. 
So we have the sagittal plane. It's a vertical plane that runs lengthwise and divides the body into right and left segments. So runs up and down, cuts the body in the left and right segment. If it divides the patient equally into two equal halves, runs right down the middle of the nose, right down the breastbone, right through the groin, et cetera, that is known as the mid-sagittal plane. That's your midline, runs right through the middle of the body, cuts the patient's body in left and right halves, equal halves. Then we have a frontal, also referred to as a coronal plane, vertical plane that divides the patient, the body into front and back halves. The front of that imaginary line is known as anterior, behind, the back of the body is known as posterior. Transverse or horizontal plane, horizontal plane that divides the body into upper and lower halves. So the top half, bottom half. Again, mid-sagittal line or plane, we also kind of refer to that as the midline of the body. It's a vertical plane running through the center of the body, dividing the body into two equal halves. Again, so your midline runs through the bridge of your nose, center of your mouth, through your chin, down the middle of your neck, down your breastbone, all the way down, cutting the body into equal left and right halves. <clears throat> we also have other imaginary lines. So we have the mid-axillary line. So in medical terms, your axillary is your armpit. So your mid-axillary line is an imaginary line that goes through the middle, mid-axillary, middle of your armpit, all the way down to your ankles. So if we're trying to describe a wound, if we know there's a penetrating wound right there and it's right in line with the middle of that patient's armpit, we can refer to it as being in the mid-axillary line. Also for things like chest tubes, chest tubes are performed in the mid-axillary line at the hospital as well. And transverse line, it's an imaginary horizontal line at the waist. Anything above that line is known as superior plane, everything below that line is known as the inferior plane. And there's just a illustration that shows those planes of the body. Again, that's a good study tool. Print that out. You can study that, actually see it. So descriptive terms, even more so than the planes, these terms you definitely need to understand and know. So again, anterior is towards the back of the body. Or I'm sorry, anterior is the front of the body. See, I'm already messing y'all all up. Anterior is towards the front. So when we talk about the anterior portion of the chest, we're talking about the front portion of the chest. Again, anterior portion of the forearm, anatomical positions, palms outward. So anterior portion is the underside of the forearm, palm side. The opposite of anterior is posterior. So posterior is towards the back. So the posterior portion of my chest is back here, the back side of my chest. Superior. 
means towards the head or above the point of reference. So let's say somebody had got shot two inches or a penetrating wound that is two inches above their belly button. How we would describe that in a report is patient was complaining or patient crew noted a penetrating injury that was approximately two inches superior of the umbilicus, which is the medical term for the belly button. So again, that's where inferior, superior can come into play. Again, the opposite of superior, superior is towards the head. Inferior is towards the feet. So I have to think about weird terms and stuff. So thinking about at work, my superior is above me. So it's my superior is above. We're moving up towards the head. Medial means towards that imaginary midline, running through the center of the body. So medial means it's closer to the midline. The opposite of medial is lateral, away from the midline. So if I'm talking about the lateral aspect of the chest, I'm talking about, kind of hard to see, this would be the midline, lateral aspect of the chest is going to be more kind of over this way, further away from that midline. So let's say somebody got shot two inches or one inch to the, to the outside of the nipple area. You can document patient had a penetrating injury that was one inch lateral of the nipple. Bilateral means on both sides. So when we listen to, say, lung sounds, you have two lungs on each side of the midline. We're going to describe those if they're clear and equal or they sound the same on both sides. We refer to that as clear and equal bilaterally on both sides. Unilateral, though, means on one side. So if patient had good lung sounds on the left but diminished on the right, we can say that patient had diminished lung sounds unilaterally on the right, clear on the left, whatever the case may be. And again, guys, study these terms because <clears throat> you need to know. So proximal is near the point of reference. And for us, when we're describing, when we use the terms proximal or its counterpart distal, we're typically referring to on extremities more than anything. And what we're talking about is our point of reference is we're talking about the torso. So distal or proximal means closer to the point of reference or closer to the trunk. The opposite of proximal is distal, further away from the point of reference. Again, typically, this is the trunk. So as an example of proximal and distal, I'm referencing in my elbow compared to my wrist. So which one is closer to my torso? My elbow. So my elbow is proximal to the wrist. Make sense? The opposite of that is true as well. My wrist is distal further away from the body than my elbow. Okay. So if I have a, an, a laceration right there on my anterior portion of my forearm, how am I going to describe exactly where it was located? Well, how I could do that is I can say that injury is approximately three inches, three, four inches proximal to my wrist on the anterior portion of my forearm. 
Make sense? Understand why we need to know these terms because it can allow us to pinpoint or as close as possible exactly where that injury is located on a patient using words. More descriptive terms. We'll get through these next two slides and then we'll, we'll take another break. So right is the patient's right. Pretty obvious, right? Talking about an injury to the right forearm, we're talking about the patient's right forearm, not my right, looking at it. Left is the patient's left. Easier said than done, because if I'm staring at the patient head on and they're pointing to where it's hurting at, you, and you will see paramedics still to this day do that. They kind of turn their body a little bit and say, all right, that's their right side. So again, just make sure when we're describing it, it's whatever side of the patient in reference to the patient. So the mid, mid clavicular, your clavicle, where's your clavicle at? Well, that's your collarbone. So if patient's complaining of pain or injury to the mid clavicular, that's right in the middle of the collarbone. More importantly than that, or more often used in true midclavicular is the midclavicular line. So that is an imaginary line that goes down the, the chest that starts from the middle of the clavicle and runs all the way down. In most patients, that nipple runs right in that midclavicular line as well for kind of as a reference. So midclavicular lines, an imaginary line that starts in the clavicle, goes down that anterior portion of the chest. So left midclavicular line, right midclavicular line. Again, your midaxillary, if I say the patient was injured in the midaxillary, that's the center of the armpit. The midaxillary line, again, is an imaginary line that goes from the center of the armpit and runs down all the way down to the patient's ankle. Plantar or plantar refers to the sole of the feet. So patient has plantar fasciitis, it hurts the bottom of their feet. Palmer refers to the palm of the, the hand. So again, Terms and directions, visualization, I'll learn better with illustrations. So if I were you, I would print that out, study it in your book. Again, that what that helps me learn more than me sitting here trying to describe and talk to it to, to you about. It. But again, it is important that we understand these directional descriptive terms. All right. Any questions? All right, let's go ahead and take another break. This will probably be our... So we also have different regions of the body as well. We have the head, patient's torso or the trunk, lower extremities, and upper extremities as well. And we'll break some of these regions down. So if we are specifically describing or talking about the anterior, the front portion of the chest, things that we can use to describe it. So your trachea is midline of your neck. You have your um, sternum or your breastbone. You have your clavicle. Then we have that midclavicular line as well that runs right through the center of your clavicle. That midline runs right through the center of the sternum. 
And then we also have what we refer to as the anterior front axillary armpit. So the anterior axillary line starts at the front of your their armpit and is an imaginary line that runs down there as well through that torso. Posterior back, again, your midline, may also be referred to as the mid-spinal line, runs through the center of the patient's spine. And then we have the mid-scapular line that runs through the center of the patient's scapula. Lateral aspect of the chest, again, we typically use the axillary line. So we have the anterior axillary line, front of the armpit, mid-axillary line, middle of the armpit, and the posterior axillary line or the back part of the armpit. Major body cavities in the body. We have the cranial cavity that houses the brain. We have the spinal cavity that houses the spinal cord. The thoracic cavity. Thoracic cavity is covered in ribs. That houses uh, both lungs, your heart, also has your trachea runs through there, your esophagus runs through there, your aorta arch is in there, and the inferior superior vena cava that feeds the heart is in that thoracic cavity as well. And again, that's from the top down, covered in ribs. What separates the thoracic cavity from the abdominal cavity inside the body is going to be the patient's diaphragm. So everything above the diaphragm is thoracic, below is the abdominal cavity, houses all your major abdominal organs, stomach, spleen, liver, uh, appendix, uh, pancreas, so forth and so on, all your intestines. And then below that, we have your pelvic cavity inside your pelvis. We typically refer to those together. If we're talking about the abdominal cavity and the pelvic cavity, it's the abdominal pelvic cavity. And we, again, typically lump those together. The abdominal cavity itself, when we talk about the abdominal cavity, we divide the abdominal cavity into four separate quadrants. So we have the right upper, left upper, right lower, left lower quadrant. And when, when we palpate the abdomen to see if we feel anything abnormal, we palpate all four quadrants of the abdomen as well. It's also important that we know which abdominal organs are located in which cap or, uh, quadrant of the abdomen as well, or at least the major ones. So the upper left, you have your stomach uh, and your spleen are going to be the main ones. We do have some of the liver that runs through there as well. And the majority of your pancreas is in the left upper. For the right upper, we have uh, your the majority of your uh, spleen, I'm sorry, your liver, uh, small portion of your pancreas is there as well, your gallbladder, very common cause of complaint for uh, female patients over the age of 40 is gallbladder pain. They tend to complain of pain in the right upper quadrant. The lower quadrants, typically we have intestines, the right lower quadrant, we also have your appendix, very common cause of complaint, especially in younger kids as well. Um, and then female reproductive organs are in the lower quadrants as well. So again, you need to know where 
the major organs are located in which quadrant of the abdomen as well. And that can help you pinpoint where the location is injured. If we have a major car wreck with major deformity and injury right in that right upper quadrant, we need to know what organs are likely going to be injured. Biggest concern would be the liver is injured. <clears throat> Moving on to different body systems in the body. There are nine major body systems in the body. We have the musculoskeletal system, and we're going to talk about each one of these individually as well. Musculoskeletal, respiratory, your circulatory system, nervous system, the endocrine system, integumentary system, digestive system, your urinary system, also referred to as the renal system, and then we have the reproductive system as well. And again, we'll talk about these individually, starting with the mus musculoskeletal system. So again, this comprises mainly of skeleton, skeletal system, bones, ligaments, tendons, muscles as well. So the skeletal system, it's a bony framework held together by ligaments and tendons and other connective tissue. So there is a difference between a ligament and a tendon. A ligament connects bone to bone, and a tendon connects muscle to bone. Easiest way that I can remember that, again, may not work for you. I'm pretty dumb, so I have to think of creative ways to remember stuff. For me, Lubbock, L-U-B-B-O-C-K. Ligament starts with an L, Lubbock starts with an L. Uh, Lubbock has two Bs in it. So ligaments connect bone to bone. That's how I remember it. Tendons, again, connect muscle to bone. So functions of the skeletal system. What does the skeletal system do? What gives its body its shape? The majority, why we look the way we do, a lot of that is made up of how our bones are positioned. Bones also protect your vital organs. Things like your rib cage protects very vital organs in your body. Your pelvis protects vital organs. Your skull protects your brain. They also allow for movement of the body as well. And the bones themselves, uh, storage of minerals, production of red blood cells. And we do, I'm not going to make you memorize all 206 names of all the 206 bones of the body, but we do need to know the main components of the, of the bones and the name of the bones of the skeletal system and the names of the major bones in the body as well. So there's uh, six basic components of the skeleton. We have the skull, comprises of your face and your cranium that protects your brain. Then we have the spinal column that allows us to stand upright, sit upright, and it also protects our spinal cord. Your thorax, again, is covered in ribs at your chest. Your pelvis and your hips. And then your extremities, upper extremities and then lower extremities as well.
So starting with the skull, consists of, the skull is then divided into two other categories. You have your cranium and the face. The cranium protects the brain, your face is your face. So the cranium forms the top, back, and sides of the skull and the forehead. And again, we need to know the major bones of the body, including all the bones of the cranium. So we have your occipital bone. Your occipital bone is back here, the back side of your skull. You have one occipital. We have two parietal bones that are located on each side up top. Two temporal bones, your, temp your temples right here on each side. And then we have one frontal, which makes up your forehead. So again, that is the bones of the cranium. Then we move on down to our face. That's from your brow to your chin. In your face, you have your orbits, which is your eye sockets. You have bones in your nose. You have your maxilla, which is your upper jaw. Your zygomatics or your cheekbones has those zygomatic arches right there as well. And then your mandible is your lower jaw. And in the face, the mandible is the only movable bone. Your jaw is the only bone in your face that moves. Spinal column begins the principal support system of the body. It allows us to stand upright, sit upright. Important, need to know this too that spinal column consists of 33 vertebrae, and there's different sections of the spinal column. And you need to know each section of the spinal column and how many vertebrae are in each section as well. So starting the most superior, working our way down inferior, so top to bottom. First is your cervical spine, it's your neck. There are seven vertebrae in your neck. So from the base of the skull where your skull attaches to your spinal column, down into your neck, down through your neck is your cervical spine. Seven vertebrae there. From there we down move into the thoracic vertebrae and you have 12 thoracic vertebrae. Your thoracic vertebrae are the ones that are attached to ribs. The lower back is the lumbar. There's five lumbar. Then we have the sacrum. These are, yeah, five sacrum. These are fused vertebrae in the pelvis. And then we have the coccyx, four fused vertebrae in the coccyx, makes up your tailbone. So cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacrum, coccyx. And again, you need to know that there's seven cervical, 12 thoracic, five lumbar, five sacrum, five coccyx. Four coccyx. Again, just an illustration showing that difference. So it's cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacrum, coccyx, you can see is your tailbone. When we are talking about or identifying a vertebrae, they're numbered. And it starts with the uh, letter that whatever portion we're in. So cervical vertebrae, there are seven. The uppermost is C1. Then we keep numbering C1, C2, C3, all the way down to C7. Then we move into the thoracic. It's T1 through T12. Lumbar, it's L1 through L5. 
sacrum and coccyx again, those are fused, so we don't differentiate those. But C1, P1, L1, whatever the case may be. So the thorax is your chest, what comprises of your chest. So the bones of the thorax, we have the sternum. Sternum is your breastbone. We have the lowest portion of your breastbone is known as the xiphoid process, the most inferior, lowest part of that sternum. And one reason the xiphoid process is so important is when we're doing chest compressions with CPR, we don't ever want to put pressure on that xiphoid because it can break off. So the xiphoid is the lowest portion. You have 24 ribs, which are 12 pairs of ribs attached posteriorly to the thoracic vertebrae by ligaments. So again, your thoracic vertebrae are connected to ribs. Those ribs then wrap around the chest and some way they're gonna attach back to the sternum, either directly or through those costal arches down there at the bottom. So again, the first seven pairs of ribs are attached directly to the sternum through ligaments and so forth. The next three pairs are attached to the ribs above them by cartilage. And the last two pairs are not attached. May also hear those referred to as those floating ribs. The lowest two pairs of ribs are not attached to the sternum. And again, one big purpose of the ribs is for protection. It's going to protect our vital organs. Not only that, those ribs also allow us to breathe easier as well. So if we fracture a bunch of ribs on one side, that is going to harm or diminish the amount of ventilation a patient is going to accomplish. Clavicles, again, these are your collarbones. The most commonly fractured bone in the body is the clavicle. Scapulas are your shoulder blades. Again, just illustrations of this. So we have our sternum. Down here, you can see that xiphoid process. And again, then we have our ribs. It can be, again, attached to directly to the sternum. These down here are going to attach to each other, the ones above it, through this cartilage, those costal arches, and then attach to the sternum. And again, the bottom ones, bottom two pair, are not attached to the sternum at all. Again, you can see your clavicle right here. And there is your scapula or your shoulder blade. Moving on down, we have the pelvis, different parts of the pelvis. We have the iliac crests. These are the wings, the largest portion of the pelvis. It's the upper margin of the pelvic bones. Again, the wings of the pelvis. The pubis is the anterior and inferior portion of the pelvis. The ischium is the posterior inferior portion of the pelvis. Again, pelvis is going to house, uh, house the bladder, the rectum, reproductive organs, as well as the inferior vena cava and the descending aorta. So has some organs in there. More importantly than the actual organs that are in the, the pelvis and why we worry so much about pelvic injuries is because of those large blood vessels that run through there as well. There's not much room in that pelvic cavity. 
So if we have a fractured pelvis, we really are concerned about those major arteries, veins, rupturing, causing massive internal bleeding. Again, we can see we have the iliac crests or those wings. We have the pubis right there, pubis synthesis, where those join together. Um, the ischiums, the ischium tuberosities are the bottom portion right here. And again, you can see not much room in that cavity, very large blood vessels run through there. And again, always a big concern with pelvic injuries is one of these rupturing, causing massive internal bleeding. And you'll learn in class for major internal bleeding or any internal bleeding for that matter, there is not a whole hell of a lot we can do in a pre-hospital setting. So there's nothing we're going to do to stop the bleeding. We just got to get them to the hospital and surgery as quickly as possible. Moving down to the legs, lower extremities. We have the femur. Femur is the thigh bone. It is the largest and strongest bone in the body. It takes a lot of force to fracture a femur. Then we have the patella, which is the kneecap. Now we're moving into the lower legs, lower extremities. We have the tibia, which is the shin bone, the larger bone in the lower leg. Then we have the fibula, which is the smaller bone of the lower leg. Working our way down to the feet. We have the calcaneus, which is the patient's heel bone. And then we have tarsals, which are the group of bones, including the calcaneus, that forms the proximal portion of the foot. So we have tarsals. Then we have metatarsals, which are, there are five metatarsals form the substance of the foot. And then we have the phalanges, or your toes, the bones of the toes. Uh, two in each big toe, three in the other toes. So from the foot, we go tarsals, metatarsals, phalanges. Again, just an illustration. So lower extremities, we start right here with the femur, largest, strongest bone in the body. Then we have the patella, which is that kneecap. Then we have the tibia, larger shin bone, the fibula, which is the uh, smaller bone the calcaneus back here, the, the heel, and then we have tarsals, metatarsals, and then at the end right here, your toes are your phalanges. Tarsals starts with the T, your toes start with the T, so, and they're in your feet. So tarsals, toes, feet. Upper extremities, your arms. Part of this makes up that shoulder girdle includes your clavicles, your scapulas. Moving actually into the extremity, we have our humerus, which is the bone of the upper arm. Then we have our elbow. And to our forearms, we have the radius, which is the lateral bone of the forearm. So again, remember, back to our anatomical position, palms facing outward. So when we're talking about lateral, that's away from the midline, so your radius is on your thumb side. The radius is on the thumb side. The other bone of the forearm is the ulna, the medial bone, or pinky side. So radius, thumb side, ulna, pinky side. 
Moving into our hands now, or our wrists and hands, we have our carpals, which are the eight bones of the wrist, the metacarpals, which are give the hands the strength and structure, and then we again move into phalanges. And so phalanges are both toes and fingers. Bones of the fingers and thumbs. Fingers have three bones, and thumb only has two bones. So again, tarsals, T, toes, tarsals are in the feet, carpals are in the hand. Somebody that has a, a carpal tunnel syndrome that happens in the hand, that's another way to help you remember it. The carpals are in the hand, metacarpals are in the hand, tarsals are in the feet. So again, upper extremity, again, we have, starting in the arm, we have our humerus, we have our radius on the thumb side, ulna on the pinky side. They come together for that joint of the elbow. And then carpals, metacarpals, phalanges. When we're talking about the skeletal system, we also got to talk about the joints as well. A joint is where one bone connects to another bone. And these joints can be movable, immovable, or slightly movable. Again, it's just going to be dependent on what type of joints. So again, any place where two joints come together or two bones come together is referred to as a joint. Even the bones in the skull, these are referred to as sutures and they're immovable. Your bones of your skull do not move at all. Slightly movable, examples of that could be in your uh, spinal cord or your spinal column. In between your vertebrae, you have a little bit of motion. Freely movable, they're going to be like your shoulders or your hips. Wide range of motion in those two joints. So different types of motions that may occur at a joint. We have flexion and the opposite of flexion is extension. So flexion means bending towards the body, decreasing the angle. Extension is the opposite, straightening away from the body, increasing the angle. So for example, your elbow. For flexion, I'm going to bend the elbow towards me. I'm flexing my elbow. The opposite of that, when I straighten it back out, that is extension. Abduction and adduction. Abduction is movement away from the midline. Adduction is movement towards the midline. Shoulders is a good example of this. Abduction, movement away from the midline, I'm lifting up. Adduction is movement towards the midline, so I'm moving back down. Circumduction is conical movement or movement through 360 degrees as with the shoulder girdle. That allows me pretty much free range. I can totally rotate my shoulder. Pronation is turning the forearm, so the palm of the hand is turned towards the back. Supination is turning the forearm to the palm of the hand is turned towards the front. So pronation, my hand is facing towards the front if it was by my side. So pronation, I'm turning it to face my back. Supination is the opposite. I'm turning it to face the front. So 
We have different types of joint movements. Again, what's going to dictate what type of movement a joint may have is going to be based on what type of joint there is. And we're mainly focusing on movable joints here. So we have a ball and socket joint. These ball and socket joints offer the widest range of motion. So where we have the ball and socket joints in the body is going to be your shoulders and your hips. You get pretty free range of motion in those two joints. We have hinged joints that allows for flexion and extension. Two places that we have hinged, the two big ones, are going to be your elbow and your knee, but also your finger joints are hinged joints as well. Pivot joints allow for a turning motion. So joints between your head and neck that allow me to turn from side to side. And your wrist as well. I can turn my wrist from side to side. Gliding joints is one bone slides across another. Where we see this is like your small bones of the hand and feet. Saddle joints allows for combination of limited motions along perpendicular planes. So kind of moving this way and this way. <clears throat> so ankles allow the your foot to turn inward slightly as it moves up and down. So your ankle is a saddle joint. Condyloid, modified ball and socket that permits limited movement in two directions. Another example of where we see these are the wrist again, allows the hand to move up and down, side to side. We cannot rotate completely 360 degrees. So where these joints occur at, if we have a good movable joint, this is what a typical joint structure is going to look at. So again, joints are where two bones come together. So with this, we're going to have ligaments. Ligaments are what connects the bones to bone. And then in between that, we're going to have that joint cavity. And in there, we're going to have a synovial membrane. And there's going to be synovial fluid in there as well, that's going to just allow for lubrication so those bone ends are not rubbing end to end. So that they're surrounded by that synovial membrane. And then in between there, there's lubricating fluid as well. And again, here's some just illustrations of the different types of joints found in the body as well. So different types of bone injuries, not so much the different types. We'll get more into that when we talk about trauma, but your bone can be injured, obviously. So bone is living tissue. Bone itself has a rich blood supply as well. So if a bone breaks, the bone itself can actually bleed as well. So fractures can lead to bleeding from the bone or the surrounding tissue. So especially with femur fractures, Femur fracture is very large bone. The femur itself can bleed pretty heavily. But not only are we worried about the bone bleeding, but if that, that fracture becomes displaced and those bony fragments now lacerate soft tissue or lacerate blood vessels, 
Now we're going to have even more bleeding internal. And blood loss can result in shock or perfusion. And we'll talk again much more about that later on. So bones have arteries and veins. Vessels enter and exit through openings in the compact outer bone layers. They branch and extend through the marrow cavity into the spongy bone. At the ends, because they are so richly supplied with blood vessels, bones can bleed profusely when fractured. Again, big one we were worried about is that femur fracture. <clears throat> so muscle, muscular system. So muscles allow movement by contracting in response to nerve impulses. So in, in order for a muscle to work, it has to be stimulated. It's stimulated by a nerve impulse. The brain, most of the time, with one exception, is going to stimulate the bone or the muscles to contract. Muscles are susceptible to injuries, just like other tissue. And basic anatomy, you should learn in school, there are three types of muscles in the body. We have voluntary muscles, may also be referred to as skeletal muscles or even striated muscles, smooth muscles, which are involuntary muscles, and then we have cardiac muscles. So skeletal muscles, these are voluntary uh, muscles. They're under the control of the brain and the nervous system. And again, they're voluntary, so we have to consciously think about them in order for them to function. So me talking right now, that requires muscle movement. I'm using voluntary muscles. Anytime you walk, talk, again, look around with your eyes, you're stimulating uh, skeletal voluntary muscles. It allows deliberate movement, such as walking, chewing, smiling, movement of the eyes. Etc. Anything you think about skeletal muscle. <clears throat> and these skeletal muscles do make up the major muscle mass of the body. And with skeletal muscles, either most are attached either at one end or both ends to bones and tendons, again, because we use them for movement. Smooth muscles are involuntary. These carry out the automatic muscle functions of the body through rhythmic, wave-like movements. These we cannot consciously think about, cannot consciously control. So where we find these are in like your GI system, your digestive tract. I can't think about and send and make my body slow down the digestion or the movement of food through my intestines. We have no control of it. Digestive tract, respiratory tract, <clears throat> these are actually found in the blood vessels as well that cause control the dilation of blood vessels, either getting bigger, smaller, etc. And smooth muscles are very hugely impacted by the amount of blood flow to them. So if they get deprived of blood flow, adequate oxygenated blood flow, they're going to start malfunctioning. While we have patients whose blood pressure drops quickly, oftentimes get very nauseated, sick to their stomach, because we are 
shunting blood away from some smooth muscles. <clears throat> and then the last type, that third type, is going to be our cardiac muscles. They're only found in the walls of the heart. These are special involuntary muscles that have the property of automaticity, automaticity meaning, which back up, can generate an electrical impulse on its own, even if disconnected from the central nervous system. So we talked about all other muscles in the body, all muscles require nervous impulses in order for them to contract and function. All other muscles in the body, besides the cardiac muscles, have to get that nerve impulse from the brain. That is not the case with the heart muscles. Heart muscles have the capacity, the capabilities of generating its own electrical impulse. So that right there explains to us why it's possible for a patient to be brain dead, but their heart can still be beating. If they're brain dead, none of their other muscles in their body is working. They're not breathing on their own, but their heart doesn't have to have that input from the brain. So the heart can continue to beat, again, even if it's completely severed and disconnected from the brain. Again, that's what makes cardiac muscles extremely unique. Your heart, your cardiac system also has its own blood supply through the coronary arteries. Coronary arteries are the arteries that feed oxygen-rich blood to the heart muscles. And your heart muscles cannot tolerate interruptions of blood flow. Again, if we deprive the heart of oxygenated blood flow, it's going to start malfunctioning. Your heart's kind of vital in order for you to live. So if your heart starts malfunctioning, the patient's going to be, have, be having a pretty bad day. Again, just kind of illustration of the major muscle masses of the body, the difference between skeletal muscles, involuntary muscles, and cardiac muscles. Moving on to the respiratory system. Functions of the respiratory system. Well, one function of the respiratory system is to provide for respiration. You also does ventilation as well. And there is a difference between respiration and ventilation. Respiration is gas exchange across membranes. Oxygen, carbon dioxide, moving across a membrane. Ventilation is the mechanical process of air moving in and out of the lungs. Oxygenation of blood and the removal of carbon dioxide, that, that's respiration. We breathe in oxygen-rich blood. It gets into our blood supply. We breathe in oxygen-rich air, sorry. It then moves into our blood supply. At the same time, our body's getting rid of, it, rid of its waste product in the form of carbon dioxide. Another thing that the respiratory system does, it assists with the buffering of the acid-base balance in the body. Your body is always trying to maintain what we refer to as, or what is referred to as homeostasis, which is normal. Part of that is the pH of the body. If your body becomes too acidic, your body is going to try to get rid of some of the acids. One way it tries to get rid of acids is by increasing breathing. And if you're interested in about acid-base imbalance, imbalances or acid-base balance, 
you will cover that pretty pretty heavy in the advanced program. We briefly talk about it, but it is covered pretty heavily in the advanced program if you decide to move on. All right, so again, we're gonna break these down. Respiration, this refers to the process of moving oxygen and carbon dioxide across membranes in and out of the alveoli, capillaries, and cells. So your alveoli are the tiny air sacs in your lungs where gas exchange occurs. So we breathe in oxygen-rich air. That oxygen moves through our lungs, gets into those alveoli. Those alveoli, there's capillary beds that are butted up against that alveoli where blood is flowing through them. Our oxygen-rich blood is going to diffuse across that membrane and work its way into our blood supply. And then it's going to get carried to the rest of the body. The cells at the rest of the body, respiration is occurring throughout the rest of the body as well, where oxygen is moving from our blood and into the cells for our cells to use. At the same time, when that's occurring, the body's trying to get rid of waste. So oxygen is moving one way across the membrane. At the same time, carbon dioxide is moving across the opposite direction across that membrane. And again, we'll talk more detailed about this. Oxygenation is the form of respiration in which oxygen molecules move across a membrane from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. And again, that's, that's diffusion. Area of high concentration, the area of low concentration. So oxygenation is just the movement of oxygen in respiration. That's all oxygenation is concerning about is the movement of oxygen, not so much the carbon dioxide. And then we have ventilation. And ventilation, again, is the mechanical process by which air is moving in and out of the lungs. And what's causing that air to move in and out of the lungs is primarily pressure changes inside that thoracic cavity. We'll talk more about that as well. Regulation of acid-base balance. So your body has three main mechanisms that the body utilizes to maintain appropriate acid-base balance within the body. And one of those is gonna be your respiratory system. So as acid levels increase, your pH is starting to drop, you're becoming acidic. Your body's building, you're retaining, making acid. The respiratory system is going to try to get rid of some of that acid, try to raise your pH. So it's going to, your respiratory system is going to increase your rate and depth of respiration to exhale excessive carbon dioxide. Your body's going to try to get rid of as much carbon dioxide as it can because carbon dioxide is acidic. So even though it may not be a buildup of carbon dioxide that's causing that pH imbalance, we're going to try to buffer it, try to uh, get it back to normal by getting rid of acid that we can get rid of. And again, in the case of respiration, that's carbon dioxide. So if you have a patient that is acidic, we expect them to be breathing rapidly and deeply, trying to get rid of excessive acid. Sorry, That typically leads to a very distinct breathing pattern known as two small respirations, and where type of patients we typically see that has two small respirations are diabetic patients that have a high blood sugar. So again, you kind of see why 
understanding anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology can kind of help you understand why we see signs and symptoms in some of the patients. So again, there's just an illustration of your respiratory system. You have your upper airways, lower airways, you have your lungs. I think we talked about those. Yeah, we do. So structures of the airway. Start with the airways divided into upper and lower portions of the airway. And that's divided by the cricoid rings at the lower portion of your larynx. So your larynx is where your Adam's apple is located. And that's where that divides the upper airways and the lower airways. So your upper airway, the components of your upper airway include your nose, your mouth, then you have your nasopharynx, your oropharynx, and then you have the, right here too, the hypopharynx, may also be referred to as the laryngeopharynx, and then down here is your actual larynx. So that's your upper airway. Everything below that is going to be your lower airway. So your larynx. It's the anterior, the front portion of your throat. So again, part of the larynx contains your thyroid cartilage, or that's your Adam's apple. So fill on your neck, you feel your Adam's apple, that's your thyroid cartilage. It also contains the cricoid cartilage. So just inferior of your Adam's apple is your cricoid cartilage. In between that space is the cricothyroid membrane, you can feel your finger kind of slot into a gap at the paramedic level when they are advanced or paramedic level. When they do surgical cricks on a patient, cutting a hole in their throat and inserting a breathing tube, that's where we're aiming is that gap in between your cricoid cartilage and your thyroid cartilage. Internally, we have our glottis or our glottic opening. This is the space between the vocal cords. So when especially Advanced airways, when we're trying to intubate a patient, place a breathing tube into a patient's trachea through their throat, through their mouth, that's what we're aiming for. We're trying to put it in between those vocal cords. You have your epiglottis, which is the flexible cartilage that works as a flap to protect the trachea from aspiration. So if it is covering the trachea, it covers the trachea when you're eating or drinking, swallowing, the epiglottis folds over the trachea to prevent anything from getting into your trachea. When you're breathing or talking, that epiglottis is going to be lifted off of the trachea. And again, here's an illustration of your larynx. So again, we have our thyroid cartilage or your Adam's apple. Below that, we have that cricoid cartilage. And again, that little gap right there is that cricothyroid ligament membrane. And that's where we're cutting with a scalpel to try to insert an ET tube. Your epiglottis is going to cover your vocal cords, and that would be that glottic opening. They just don't really have the vocal cords uh, pictured there. Now we move on down to our lower airways. Part of the lower airway includes your trachea, the windpipe. The windpipe goes down, and that's going to branch off into bronchi. You have your left mainstem bronchi and your right mainstem bronchi. 
And then those air passageways are going to keep breaking off, branching off, getting smaller and smaller as they branch off from the bronchi. From the bronchi, they branch into bronchioles. And those bronchioles are going to eventually lead into the alveoli. And again, it is the alveoli where the gas exchange is actually occurring at in the lungs. So the trachea. Again, the trachea is the windpipe. It's a rigid structure. The trachea always remains open. That's not the case for your esophagus. If your esophagus is not in use, it's collapsed. But your trachea always stays open. It's a rigid structure made up of 15 to 20 C-shaped rings. <clears throat> and those tracheal rings, again, they're not complete circles. They're C-shaped. The bronchi. Trachea then again branches into two bronchi, the right main stem and the left main stem bronchi. The bronchi branches off further into bronchioles. And again, the bronchioles will keep dividing, subdividing, dividing, dividing until they get smaller, smaller, and smaller. And then those bronchioles are eventually going to reach into the alveoli. And the alveoli are the tiny air sacs, again, where actual gas exchange is occurring in the lungs. So those bronchioles are also surrounded by smooth muscles as well. And if those smooth muscles are constricting, now we are narrowing down that passageway for where air can enter. So again, this is a normal bronchial, nice, clear, open passageway for air to reach the alveoli without meeting resistance. In this case, we're having very likely it's an asthma attack. So these smooth muscles are constricting and tightening down that bronchial. Not only is now do we have just a narrower pathway, less air is going to be able to reach that alveoli, but with asthma as well, we also get an increase in mucus production. So we have a smaller opening to begin with, and now that smaller opening is starting to fill with mucus, severely limiting the amount of air that can reach the lungs or the alveoli. So again, treatment-wise, we want to fix this. How we fix this, we're going to give them medications to release, loosen up those smooth muscles, allow that bronchial to open up. And we're also going to give them medicine as well in this area anyway, that's going to help dry up those secretions, those mucus, that increased mucus production as well. The lungs themselves are the principal organs of respiration. Inside your lungs, there are thousands of microscopic alveoli. Your lungs, that thoracic cavity, are also covered by a pleural lining. And there's different components of the pleura. We have the visceral pleura, which covers the outer surface of the lungs. So visceral means, in this context, is meaning it's making contact with the organs themselves. We're talking about the pleura in this case. So visceral pleura is what's making contact with the lungs themselves. And then we have the parietal pleura, which covers the internal chest wall. So the parietal pleura is making contact with the chest wall. In between there, there is a space known as the pleural cavity. 
there is a tiny space between the two layers of the pleura that inside that space, there is a negative pressure or a vacuum that's allowing, that helps allow the lungs to stay inflated. So if we rupture, doesn't really matter if it's the visceral or the pleural, the parotid pleura, if we rupture either one of those, now that negative space is going to suck air into that cavity and it's going to put pressure on the lung and that's going to cause that lung to collapse. So it's very, that pleura is very vital uh, in order for, it needs to be intact, needs to help keep those lungs inflated. And again, if air gets sucked into that pleural space, that air pressure is going to cause that lung to collapse, causing what we call a pneumothorax, which is a collapsed lung because air pneumo is entering the thoracic cavity. So again, you can see those, kind of hard to see, but those pleural lining. The visceral pleura is making contact with the organs themselves, right, right here. And then the parietal pleura is making contact with the chest wall. And again, we have that space in between them that has a vacuum in it, negative pressure, helping keep those lungs inflated. The alveoli. Tiny air sacs enclosed in a network of capillaries, which are tiny blood vessels that form the respiratory membrane. Again, this is where gas exchange occurs. This is where oxygen leaves the lungs to get into our circulatory system. At the same time, your circulatory system is dumping off its waste, carbon dioxide, into the lungs for us to breathe out on our next breath. So air oxygen goes into the alveoli, carbon dioxide, and waste products go out. And examples of kind of what that alveoli look like. So again, here's your alveoli. You have thousands and thousands of these throughout your lungs. These alveoli are going to have these capillary beds where the arteries and the veins meet together very thin where gas exchange is going to occur. So again, air, this is your alveoli. This is that capillary bed that's coming up in contact with it. So we breathe in fresh oxygenated air. So at this time, this blood has already been used. It's already jumped, dumped off its good oxygen and it's been picking up carbon dioxide. So we breathe in fresh oxygenated air. So inside our alveoli, there's gonna be a higher concentration of oxygen than there is going to be in this capillary blood flow at this time. So because there's a higher concentration through diffusion area of high concentration to low concentration, oxygen is gonna move across this membrane and get into the blood. And then it's gonna be circulated throughout the rest of the body for the cells to be used. At the same time, as oxygen is moving into the blood, oxygen and carbon dioxide are moving in opposite paths. The blood is going to have a higher concentration of carbon dioxide because it's picked up a bunch while it's making its way back to the heart or the lungs, I'm sorry. So there's going to be a higher concentration of carbon dioxide in the blood compared to in the alveoli. So through diffusion, carbon dioxide is going to move from the blood into our alveoli. And the next time that we exhale, we're going to breathe off all of that carbon dioxide. Everybody with me? Making sense? Okay. Diaphragm, 
Diaphragm is a powerful dome-shaped muscle that is essential for respiration. So we need that diaphragm in order for us to breathe most, most of the time. If our diaphragm is, is injured, damaged, stops working, we may be able to use some accessory muscles to help us breathe for a little bit, but they're going to tire out and then we're going to stop breathing. So this diaphragm is very vital. If we have major diaphragmatic injury, it's going to lead to respiratory issues. Not only that, but again, that diaphragm is what separates the thoracic cavity from the abdominal cavity down here as well. So we've been talking a lot about adults, but there is some differences in the respiratory system anatomy in infants and kiddos. Things to note, the mouth and nose are smaller, so they're more easily obstructed. A lot of the choking calls you'll go on is going to be smaller kiddos. Your their tongues are also proportionately larger. They take up a lot of space in the mouth. That's something that we do have to worry about. If they're unresponsive and can't control their tongue, their tongue could be occluding their airway. Advanced to paramedic level, it's hard to get that tongue out of the way when we're trying to visualize those vocal cords to try to intubate a kiddo. Again, they have narrow, more narrow tracheas. It means they're more easily obstructed. Uh, typically, asthma attacks in kiddos tend to be more dangerous than that of adults because they have narrow, more narrow openings to begin with. Cricoid cartilage are, and other structures are less rigid, meaning one thing that we have to be very cautious about is rocking a kid's head too far back to open the airway, which we'll talk about in chapter 10, but you can actually overextend that neck to the point where you're kinking off that airway, causing them to stop breathing. And they're more dependent on the diaphragm for breathing. I kind of mentioned this a little earlier. We have other muscles that can be used if our diaphragm is injured to help us breathe at least for a little bit. Kiddos do not have those muscles. They have the muscles, but they're not as built built up. They can't rely on them like adults can. So a diaphragmatic injury in a small kiddo infant especially is going to be much more detrimental, much quicker than it would be in an adult patient. And again, just an illustration kind of showing those differences as well. All right, so moving on, talking about ventilation. Again, remember, ventilation is the mechanical process of drawing air in and out of the lungs. So ventilation is comprised of two components, inhalation, exhalation. Inhalation is the active phase of ventilation. Well, what does that mean? It's the active phase. When we're talking about it being the active phase, that's when your body is having to do the work. Meaning it's when we inhale is when your body is causing muscles to contract. So that's where our body is spending in, in energy during ventilation is during inhalation. So during inhalation, your diaphragm is signaled to contract your intercostal muscles are contracting as well. So these muscles are contracting. What's that, what, what that is causing is causing your thoracic cavity to get bigger. So we inhale, our thoracic cavity gets bigger, gets larger. When we have, and we'll talk about Boyle's Law and all this other stuff coming up, 
But since we're increasing the size of our chest, we're creating a negative pressure inside that inside the lung. So our chest is getting bigger. That's dropping the pressure in there. That's creating a negative pressure compared to the outside world or a vacuum. So it's drawing, forcing air to rush into our lungs. So that's what, again, that's how lungs, our air gets into our lungs is through a negative pressure. Our chest gets bigger, creates a vacuum, sucks air in from the outside world. The opposite or the second phase or component is exhalation. And this is the passive phase. This is where your body's not having to work. This is when all your muscles relax. The diaphragm intercostal muscles relax. Your chest goes back down to its normal size. So it's getting smaller in size, which is causing a decrease. I'm sorry, decreasing the size of the thoracic cavity. So we have the same amount of air now into a smaller container. That's going to cause a positive pressure. So there's more pressure inside the lungs, inside the chest than there is the outside world. So that positive pressure is going to force air out of the lungs into the outside environment, causing the air to rush out. Again, what causes air to move in and out of our bodies primarily is going to be changes in pressure. Negative pressure during inhalation, positive pressure forcing air out during exhalation. Again, just kind of showing what's going on. Inhalation, muscles contract, makes your chest get larger, creates a negative pressure, air rushes in. During exhalation, all of our muscles relax, our chest goes back down to its normal size, smaller size, creates positive pressure, more pressure inside the body than outside, forcing air out of the lungs to the outside environment. So uh, physiology of respiration. Again, we're back on respiration now, gas exchange. So oxygen, carbon dioxide are exchanged in the alveoli. So again, higher concentration of oxygen in the alveoli compared to the blood, oxygen moves across the membrane into the blood. At the same time, there's blood has a higher concentration of carbon dioxide than the alveoli. Carbon dioxide is going to uh, diffuse across that membrane into the alveoli. <clears throat> so again, Respiration is not only happening inside the lungs, but it's happening at every cell throughout the rest of the body as well. So carbon dioxide and oxygen exchange in the peripheral capillary beds as well. So that oxygenated blood is circulating throughout the rest of the body. Once it reaches a cell, there's going to be a higher concentration of oxygen in the blood now because it's been oxygenated, hasn't been used yet then what the cells are going to have, because the cells have already used their oxygen that they had previously, so that oxygen-rich blood, the oxygen is going to diffuse from the blood into the cells to be used. At the same time, the cells have been burning oxygen, making energy, creating carbon dioxide, so the cells are going to have a higher concentration of carbon dioxide than the blood is at this point, so that carbon dioxide is going to move across that membrane to get into the blood then it's going to be circulated back to the lungs, and that process is going to repeat over and over and over and over and over again. So again, this is alveolar capillary gas exchange. Alveolar, this is happening in the lungs and the alveoli. Again, pretty much already talked about this. Oxygen-rich air comes in, uh, 
Oxygen is going to diffuse across the membrane and get into the unoxygenated blood. At that same time, this unoxygenated blood is rich in carbon dioxide, so it's going to diffuse across the membrane to get into the alveoli get, to be exhaled, getting rid of. Again, this is also happening at the cells throughout the rest of the body. So again, that blood gets oxygenated. Now it's getting pumped throughout the rest of the body. So we have oxygen-rich blood coming in to the cells. A higher concentration of oxygen in the blood at this point, so it diffuses into the cells. Cells are going to have a higher concentration of carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide is going to diffuse into the capillaries and then get carried right back out to the lungs to be to occur again. So adequate and inadequate breathing. And this is a very vital component that you need to know. And we'll talk more about this in chapter 10 as well. But in order for a patient to be breathing adequately, there are two things that have to be true in order for a patient to be breathing. They have to be breathing at a significant or sufficient, I should say, a good rate. They have to be breathing so many times per minute. Not only that, the other factor that we're looking at is tidal volume as well, meaning the depth of each breath. They, with each breath they're breathing, they have to have an adequate amount of depth to them as well. So again, tidal volume refers to the amount of air the patient breathes in and out in each breath. So with every breath they take, we have to ensure that it's deep enough to actually get enough oxygen into the body. And rate, respiratory rate, again, is the number of times a patient is breathing per minute. And again, in order for a patient to be breathing adequately or sufficiently, both of those have to be true. If they have good rate but poor tidal volume, they're not breathing adequately on their own. If they have a decent tidal volume but a poor rate, they're not breathing on their own, not breathing adequately on their own. So, what is y'all's guess? What do we do if a patient's not breathing adequately on their own? Somebody tell me, what do we do for them? CPR. Not necessarily CPR. That CPR is chest compressions. They're, they can still be, heart can still be beating, but they're just not breathing effectively. Use a, uh, um, use O2 or a bell, bell face mask. So Maybe. not necessarily just O2, but if patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we're going to breathe for them. We're going to assist their breathing. We're going to use a BVM, bag valve mask, and assist their ventilation. So adequate respiratory rates. How do we know if this rate is good or not? Well, vital signs in general are going to be age dependent. So in order for us to know is this a good rate or a bad rate, we need to know how old the patient is. So adults. Normal respiratory rates are from 12 to 20 breaths per minute. Does that mean every patient breathing 22 times per minute, we're going to bag? No, of course not. Um, somebody runs a while, they're going to obviously be breathing much more than 20 times per minute. So again, this, these are averages, but there is what there's can be extremes. If they're breathing 40, 50 times per minute, now we're starting to worry about if they're breathing adequately on their own or not. Kiddos, children, they breathe 18 to 37 times per minute. So for 
kids, the younger they are, typically the faster their resting respiratory rate is going to be. And infants can be breathing as fast as 30 to 60 times per minute and then not be worrisome. So they breathe very, really quick. So some things that we should see if the patient is breathing adequately on their own, not in a whole lot of distress either. Should have a regular rhythm. The interval in between each breath should be roughly the same. Their breathing should look effortless. It doesn't look like they're struggling. It doesn't look like they're having a hard time catching their breath. We watch their chest move up and down. It should expand adequately with each breath. We should hear no ab abnormal sounds when they're breathing, either with the stethoscope or without a stethoscope. We shouldn't really be hearing them breathe, hear any abnormal sounds. And we'll talk about some of those abnormal sounds later on. And they should not be using accessory muscles to help them breathe as well, using their neck muscles, their muscles in between their, their ribs, using their abdominal muscles to really help them breathe and make that chest get larger. Again, it should look effortless. It shouldn't look like they're having a hard time breathing. Indications that the patient may be breathing inadequately. Again, the two main things that we're looking at is rate and tidal volume. So if their rate is way too fast or if it's too slow, that should be an indication that, hey, they're probably not breathing adequately on their own, meaning we need to bag them. May have an irregular rhythm. Again, the spaces in between each breath is not normal or consistent. And have diminished or absent breath sounds. We listen to with their to their lungs with the stethoscope, and we don't hear any air moving or very little amounts of air moving into their lungs. They have unequal or inadequate chest expansion. One side of the chest is moving okay, but the other side doesn't look like it's moving very much with each breath. Or both sides of the chest are moving, just very, very little. The depth is not going to be very good. Other indications. If they have pale or bluish skin color or their mucous membranes inside their mouth are bluish, that may be an indication that they're not getting enough oxygen to the cells. They're hypoxic. And what we refer to that bluish coloring, that is referred to as cyanosis, which is the bluish skin color. So cyanosis, or the patient is cyanotic, indicates that they are hypoxic. Their tissues are not cells are not getting enough oxygen. Patients may also have what we refer to as agonal breathing or agonal gasps, which it's occasional gasping breaths where the patient is just not moving much air at all. It's not, we don't even really consider that breathing because they're just every once in a while they're going, not moving any air, just occasional gas. Those are agonal breathing. All right. Again, that's 
probably the best place that we're going to go ahead and take a break. So moving on with talking about the different body systems, moving on to the circulatory system. Circulatory system is a closed system to transport blood, nutrients, and oxygen to all tissues of the body. Circulatory system is also there to remove any waste products from the tissue as well. We've already kind of mentioned the waste product of carbon dioxide. And the circulatory system is comprised of the heart, blood vessels, and the actual blood itself. And here you can just kind of see a layout of the differences. So we have the heart, we have arteries right here, veins, and then the smallest where the veins and the arteries merge and it transfers from the arterial system into the venous system. That happens at the capillaries. And again, the capillaries is where the gas exchange respiration occurs for the cells. So we'll break it down, talk about the different components of the circulatory system, starting with the heart. Heart is a muscular pump that lies between the lungs in that thoracic cavity. And again, remember what makes cardiac muscles unique is that it does have its own electrical system. It is not reliant on the brain to initiate that nervous impulse to cause that the heart muscles to constrict. You have the pericardium, which is a double-walled sac that encloses the heart, helps give that heart support. And we can have issues if that pericardium starts filling up with blood. It will start compressing on that heart, making that heart not beat very effectively. The heart itself consists of four chambers. You have the upper two chambers, the left and right atria, the atriums, and then you have the left and right ventricles, which are the bottom two chambers. You have valves inside the heart as well. The valves are there to ensure that blood keeps flowing in one direction and it prevents that blood from backflowing. The heart valves includes the tricuspid valve. This is between the right atrium and right ventricle. The bicuspid, or more commonly referred to as the mitral valve, is between the left atrium and the left ventricle. Omonic valve is between the, uh, the base of the pulmonary artery and the right ventricle. And the aortic valve is at the base of the aortic artery in the left ventricle. And it's the left side of the heart, the left ventricle specifically, that pumps blood to the rest of the body. So this is showing blood as it flows through the heart. And we'll talk more about this in pathophysiology as well in, in the cardiac system. But uh, the blood enters the heart through the vena cava. You have the inferior vena cava down here, and then you have the superior vena cava right here. From there, it goes into the right side of the heart, into that right atrium, through the tricuspid valve, into that right ventricle, through the pulmonic valve, into the pulmonary arteries. These pulmonary arteries are then going to circulate that blood to the lungs. 
and the lungs, those bloods are going to get or get oxygenated, wrap around that alveoli, and then they're going to come back into the left side of the heart through the pulmonary vein. From the pulmonary vein, it goes into the left atria, through the mitral valve, into the left ventricle. That left ventricle then goes through the aortic valve, into the aorta, and then throughout the rest of the body. So arteries in the body. The definition of an artery or what makes an artery an artery is arteries carry blood away from the heart. So if it's leaving the heart, it's going through an artery. And all arteries in the body, except for the pulmonary artery, all other arteries in the body carry oxygen-rich blood. Pulmonary artery is carrying blood from the right side of the heart into the lungs. It's carrying it away from the heart, so it's still considered an artery. And again, it's the only artery in the body that is not going to carry oxygen-rich blood. The aorta is the major artery of the heart. All other, all and all blood going to the body passes through the aorta. The aorta will branch into smaller and smaller arteries the further it gets away from the heart. You have your coronary arteries. Those are the arteries that supply the heart muscle with its oxygen, oxygen-rich blood, its blood supply. You have carotid arteries that are located in your neck, on each side of your neck and supply the brain with blood. Very large arteries, if they rupture, the patient will bleed very quickly. Femoral arteries, you have two, one on each side, going down each leg, <clears throat> located in the thigh, supplies blood to the lower extremities. The dorsalis pedis arteries, are we refer to them as a pedal artery or the pedal pulse, are located on top of uh, both feet. And when we're checking distal circulation in the feet, this is typically where we check distal circulation is the, the pedal pulse on top of the foot. Brachial artery is located in front of the elbow. So it runs right here in the interior aspect. This is where we check for pulses at on infants. This is also the artery that we listen for for blood pressure when we're taking blood pressures on our patients as well as the brachial artery. The radial artery is located in the wrist on the thumb side. You can feel the little groove, feel the bone of your, of your uh, wrist, slide your fingers inward into a little groove and you can feel your radial pulse. And again, your pulmonary arteries carry blood from the right ventricle to the lungs. And again, it is the only artery that does not carry oxygen-enriched blood. Just showing you the layout of where those major arteries of the body run. You can see this aorta right here. We have that aortic arch. The head, the carotids, the upper extremities feed right off that arch. Then it goes down. It is, uh, goes downward. The aorta runs through the whole thoracic cavity into the abdominal cavity, branches off several branches along the way, and then it goes down into the pelvis where it branches off into the femoral arteries. And again, it gets smaller and smaller the further it goes away from the heart. And again, you can see the brachial artery, 
radial artery, carotid artery, and those are common places where we do check pulses at on patients. Coronary arteries, again, those feed the heart themselves. You have your right coronary artery, your left coronary artery on this side, and then the left coronary artery branches into the anterior descending branch of the left coronary artery. Again, when we have things like heart attacks, there's a blockage in one of these coronary arteries that's preventing a portion of the heart from getting that oxygen-rich blood. In paramedic class, you spend a lot of time learning how to read 12-lead EKGs. Those 12 leads will tell you which part of the heart is affected is not receiving adequate blood flow, which in turn is killing the heart. Where we see that damage at, we can kind of work backwards and determine which coronary artery is actually being affected or blocked based on, again, how much of the heart, which part of the heart is being affected. Small blood vessels. So the arteries, again, as they branch off from that uh, the aorta, they get smaller and smaller the further they get away from the heart. Each artery is eventually going to branch off into arterioles, which is the smallest type of artery. So they get smaller, smaller, and at some point we classify them as arterioles. Those arterioles then are going to branch off into the capillaries. And again, it's at those capillaries or tiny vessels where gas exchange actually occurs. And again, it's at these capillaries where we move from the arter the from arteries into the venous system. It goes back into veins. So it goes into the capillary as arterioles, and it's going to leave those capillaries on the venous side, known as venules, are the smallest type of veins that are connected to capillaries. Those venules are going to, again, branch, get bigger and bigger, turning into veins, and so forth. But again, you can see right here a picture of arterioles, venules, and those capillaries. So oxygen-rich bloods are coming through this arteriole, get shunted off into this capillary. Gas exchange occurs, and again, it's at this, in these capillaries where it moves from the arterial side into the venous side, goes into the venules, or the capillaries, and leads into a venule, then it will lead into larger veins. So again, the venous system, the venules, the smallest of the veins, those will lead into bigger veins. Veins transport blood back to the heart. Again, just like an artery, that's their definition. They move blood to the heart. And with the exception of the pulmonary vein, all other veins transport unoxygenated blood. Again, the pulmonary vein is taking blood from the lungs after it's been oxygenated back to the heart. So the pulmonary vein is the only vein in the body that carries oxygen-rich blood. The vena cava is the major vein that connects to the right atrium. So all of these veins, again, as they get closer to the vena cava, are getting bigger and bigger. Once they, they hit that vena cava, that vena cava is attached directly to that right atrium, and it dumps into that right atrium. Again, you have a superior vena cava and an inferior vena cava. And again, the pulmonary veins are the only veins in the body that carries oxygen-rich blood from the lungs back into the left side of the heart. Left side of the heart then pumps that blood to the rest of the body. 
right side of the heart pumps blood to the, the lungs, left side of the heart pumps blood to the rest of the body. There is structural differences in veins and arteries as well. Again, you can see those differences here and those capillaries are extremely thin to allow that gas exchange to occur. They have a lot more smooth muscles in arteries than they do in veins as well. So blood vessels can dilate or they can constrict as well. And if they are especially dilating too big, it can cause issues for our patient. The blood itself, composition of blood, we have red blood cells. Red blood cells carry oxygen to the cells, carry carbon dioxide away from the cell. So it's the red blood cells that carry oxygen and carbon dioxide, it's hemoglobin, red blood cells. Your white blood cells, they are the ones that fight off infections. Platelets are for clot formation. If you rupture capillaries, veins, arteries, so forth, platelets are going to be moving to that area. Those platelets stick together to try to slow or stop that bleeding process from occurring. So these three items right here are what is considered the formed elements of the blood, and they're all floating in a liquid, and that liquid is the plasma. So the, the plasma is the liquid part of the blood. <clears throat> so physiology of circulation, by assessing the pulses and blood pressure, it gives you information about the adequacy of circulation. So that's how we're going to know if the heart's beating effectively or not. We're going to check, feel for a pulse. We're going to count how fast it's beating, how strong it is. And we're also going to assess blood pressures as well. So when we feel a pulse, what we're actually feeling is a wave of blood that is getting pumped through the body every time that left ventricle beats. So every time that left ventricle contracts, a pulse of blood is getting sent through the body, a wave of blood is getting sent through the body, and we're able to feel that at these pulse points. Pulses are broken down into central or peripheral pulses. For adults, especially central pulses are considered the carotid in the neck and the femoral in the groin area. And peripheral pulses are radial pulses, brachial pulses, posterior tibial pulses, which we don't tend to assess too frequently in the preoperative setting, but the dorsalis pedis or the pedal pulse is something that we do routinely assess. So do you think a patient will lose central pulses first or peripheral pulses first? Peripheral. Peripheral, exactly right. So if we feel for a pulse and we can't feel the radial pulse on a patient before we decide, hey, their heart's just not beating, we need to start CPR, we need to go back and check for central pulses. So if we have a patient that's unresponsive, we tend to go straight to central pulses without even checking peripheral pulses, at least initially. <clears throat> blood pressure is the force exerted on the walls of the arteries as blood passes through. So again, that 
blood that's getting propelled through those arteries is putting pressure on those arterial walls. We refer to it as blood pressure. When we take a blood pressure on a patient, we're getting two readings, top number, bottom number. The top number is the systolic blood pressure. That is the force against the arterial walls when the left ventricle is actually contracting, known as systole. That is going to be the most pressure that those arterial walls are going to be under. So your systolic has to be greater than your diastolic or the bottom number. So again, that top number is when the left ventricle is actually contracting. The bottom number is the diastolic blood pressure. This is when the left ventricle is relaxed, also known as diastole. There's, those arteries still have pressure in them, even when the heart is completely relaxed. So checking that blood pressure, that bottom number is when that heart is not beating, how much pressure is left inside those arterial walls. And we'll talk more about blood pressures, assessing, and so forth, uh, chapter 11, I think. Maybe not. Can't remember. Hydrostatic pressure is a force of fluid within the blood vessels and is determined by the volume of blood. That's sorry. An elevated hydrostatic pressure can be detrimental. So hydrostatic pressure is where there's a force on those arteries, mainly the capillaries, where that blood is, is trying to escape. So too much hydrostatic pressure, more fluid, more volume is leaking out of those capillaries. So that can cause things like edema or swelling. Somebody with a lot of hydrostatic pressure or excessive hydrostatic pressure, you're going to start seeing swelling in the body. Where we typically see swelling in patients is in their feet and ankles because it's based on gravity. So an increase or too much hydrostatic pressure is going to force fluid out of the, the cardiac system and it's going to start leaking, causing swelling. Perfusion, very important definition. Perfusion is the delivery of oxygen, glucose, other essential nutrients to the cells of all organ systems and the elimination of carbon dioxide and other waste. This is what your body needs in order to survive. It needs perfusion. So perfusion is delivery of not only oxygen, but it's also glucose and other essential nutrients to the cells of the body. That is going to be on your test, I promise you. Hypoperfusion, we'll talk a little bit about cardiac uh, medical terminology. Anytime you see the word hypo in the front of a word, that means less than, lower than, or, or so forth. So hypo or perfusion means, again, it's inadequate or poor perfusion. We, this is also known as shock. So bad perfusion, the patient is going to be in shock. Patients in shock, that results in injury or death to the cells. So again, just an illustration of that circulatory system. We've pretty much already gone over it. But the right side of the heart pumps the blood to the lungs. They get oxygenated. They go back into the left side of the heart. 
Left side of the heart then pumps that blood to the rest of the body. Again, respiration is occurring not only in the lungs, but at each cell as well. It moves from the arteries into the venous system through these capillaries, and then it goes right back into the heart. Again, that is just a constant, ever-going cycle. So the transport of gas is in the blood. That's what a big component or why blood is there is it's transporting essential nutrients and gases to the cells. To maintain perfusion, oxygen and nutrients must enter the cells. Carbon dioxide and other waste products must be removed from the cells. So how does your blood carry these gases? Well, 90% of oxygen is carried attached to the hemoglobin. Again, those are found in the red blood cells. So the vast majority of oxygen that's in our body, in our blood, is attached to hemoglobin. They actually bind to the hemoglobin through iron sites on the hemoglobin. So iron is needed for good oxygen transportation as well. The rest of it, 3% of it, of that oxygen does get dissolved into the plasma. But again, vast majority of it carried on the hemoglobin. Coming back the other way for carbon dioxide, the vast majority of carbon dioxide, 70% of it, is carried in the plasma in the form of bicarbonate. So your body goes to, your blood goes to these cells, it picks up carbon dioxide, it's in the form of bicarbonate, it doesn't attach to the plasma, or 70% of it doesn't attach to the plasma, it just dissolves into the plasma. And then it gets converted back into CO2, carbon dioxide, in the lungs. 23% of carbon dioxide does attach to the hemoglobin. 7% of carbon dioxide stays in the form of carbon dioxide and dissolves into the plasma itself as well. Cell metabolism. So in order to survive, cells must break down and utilize glucose to produce energy. And ideally, in order for this to occur, we need oxygen. Oxygen is going to be required for normal cell metabolism to occur. So there's old sayings in EMS, air has to go in and out, and blood has to go round and round. And any variant of that is going to be a bad thing for our patients. So we breathe in oxygen, so we have to breathe in order to get adequate amounts of oxygen. Our blood has to circulate adequately to circulate that oxygen to the cells. In that blood, we're also carrying things like glucose as well. So breathing, pulse rate, heart beating, all of that is in an effort to make sure that the cells have plenty of oxygen, and plenty of glucose and getting rid of waste products. So again, for normal metabolism to occur, for our cells to break down glucose efficiently, we need oxygen in place for it to occur. So there's two forms of metabolism. We have aerobic and anaerobic. Aerobic is good, it's what we want. Oxygen is there. Anaerobic is bad, 
And that means no oxygen is, is available or not enough oxygen is available. So again, aerobic metabolism, it literally means with oxygen. So it's metabolism that is occurring with oxygen. Again, this is normal. This is what we want to occur for our patients. Byproducts or waste products that are created by normal cellular metabolism, aerobic metabolism is carbon dioxide. Again, that's the waste product. Heat is also generated during normal cell metabolism as well. That's how we our body, our core temperatures stay at constant 98.6. We're getting that heat from cell metabolism. Anaerobic metabolism without oxygen. Again, anaerobic is bad. Don't want it. It's metabolism that produces very little energy. So without oxygen, your cell is going to try to go through some metabolism. It's going to try to break down that glucose. It's just not going to do it very effectively at all. And instead of generating heat, carbon dioxide as waste products, it's producing lactic acid as a waste product. Technically, it's producing pyruvic acid that is then converted into lactic acid. But that buildup of lactic acid is going to cause issues for our patients as well. So we're not getting as good metabolism. And we're getting, so we're not getting good energy production and we're getting harmful, very harmful waste products created as well. <clears throat> and we'll talk more about that in uh, chapter eight as well. So the nervous system, functions of the nervous system, controls and maintains a state of awareness, keeps us conscious. They also transmit sensory stimulus to the brain. If we're hot, we're cold, we feel somebody touching us. We reach out, touch a hot plate, and it burns us. We feel that pain. It's that sensory stimuli. The brain also, nervous system, sorry, controls voluntary motions, talking, moving, walking, eating, so forth, and involuntary motor functions as well. And it controls body functions through the autonomic nervous uh, the autonomic nervous system. Again, autonomic is automatic. We don't have to consciously think about it. Your brain is doing this on its own without us thinking about it. So there are two structural divisions of the nervous system. We have the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system is only comprised of two items, the brain, and the spinal cord. That's it. Anything else, any other nerves, so forth, are all going to be part of the peripheral nervous system. These are nerves outside of the brain, outside of the spinal cord, and this includes cranial nerves, facial nerves, etc. as well. So again, central nervous system, all it is is the brain and the spinal cord all the way down. And again, the peripheral nervous system, all these peripheral nerves that branch out are part of that peripheral nervous system. Your nervous system has things like reflexes where it kind of bypasses having to go through the brain. The brain, we reach out, touch something extremely hot. Your body's going to pull back from that heat source without even having to think about it. And again, it is a, uh, a reflex loop where it doesn't even have to reach, go all the way back up to reach the brain. It can occur right there in that spinal cord. 
So those are the two structural divisions, central, periphery. You also have functional divisions of the nervous system as well. You have the voluntary nervous system, controls the activities of the skeletal muscles and movements. Again, voluntary things that we have to think about. So walking, talking, so forth, those are all parts of the voluntary nervous system. And then we have the autonomic nervous system. It controls involuntary body functions. Again, things that we don't really have control of. It occurs on its own without us having to think. The autonomic nervous system is then broken down into two separate divisions as well. We have the sympathetic nervous system or the SNS and the parasympathetic nervous system or the PNS. Sympathetic nervous system, also known as the fight or flight response, parasympathetic, rest and digest. So again, sympathetic nervous system. This is activated by stress on the body. So if we're getting into, say, we're out and somebody shoves us, we know we're about to get into our into a fight. Our sympathetic nervous system is going to ramp up. Uh, and again, this is also known as the fight or flight response. <clears throat> it does not have to be an external stimulus, though. If I get... Say I'm having major internal bleeding, my body realizes it's not getting enough oxygen-rich blood, sympathetic nervous system is going to activate itself as well to try to compensate for whatever is wrong with my body. Parasympathetic nervous system, it's the normal activities of the body, and this is the rest and digest system. So if you're completely relaxed, if you're sleeping, your parasympathetic nervous system is going to be way more active than your sympathetic nervous system. And again, it's focusing more on, we're not worried about running away. Our heart rate is not going to increase, but it's actually going to decrease. Our breathing is going to slow down. Blood pressures are going to slow down, et cetera. Again, this next little table right here kind of shows what occurs when either the parasympathetic nervous system is activated or the sympathetic nervous system is activated. So with this, the sympathetic, again, fight or flight, things that are going to occur in the body, your pupils are going to dilate, eyes are going to get bigger, you're going to get be able to see more of your surroundings, again, to take evasive action if need be. Your saliva activities decrease. Your body's not worried at, in this moment about digesting food, it's wanting to focus on the threat, so we're not going to salivate as much. It's going to put its efforts into doing other things. Your bronchioles, those airways in your lungs are going to dilate to ensure that if you need more oxygen, more oxygen is going to be able to reach the alveoli. Heart rate is going to increase. It's going to circulate more oxygenated blood to the body to make sure that our muscles, our organs have enough oxygen during this stressful time. Blood vessels are going to constrict. That constricting blood vessels are going to raise blood pressure. Epinephrine is going to be secreted, and that is the main, um, um, I just went absolute blank. Epinephrine is the main hormone 
that is going to get secreted. And that epinephrine secretion is going to cause all of cause all these things that we're talking about. Sweat secretions increase. You're going to start sweating more. That's in an effort to keep your body cool as it's going through the stressful time, possibly running, fighting, or exerting itself. Gastric juices are going to decrease as well. Again, your body's not worried at this time, is not worried about digesting food. It's putting its efforts into other items. And you can see over here on the parasympathetic side, side everything we just talked about is going to be almost the exact opposite. Saliva is going to increase, pupils are going to constrict, heart rate is going to decrease, blood pressure is going to decrease, blood vessels are going to dilate, and et cetera. Gastric juices are going to increase. Again, we're not worried about what else is going on. Your body's doing its routine housekeeping. Digesting food is going to be its primary concern at this time. So talking about consciousness versus an unconscious patient. So in order for a patient to be conscious, it's going to rely on the cerebral hemispheres of the brain and the RAS, which is the reticular activating system. And the RAS is a group of nerves in the brainstem, kind of known as the on or off center of the brain. So in order for a patient to be conscious, all of us in here, hopefully, the RAS has to be functioning. Not only does the RAS have to be functioned, but at least one cerebral hemisphere must be intact and functioning as well. If that's occurring, then the patient's going to be conscious. Now, they may be extremely altered and confused and so forth, but they're going to be conscious. For an unconscious patient, one of two things are happening. Either the RAS is not functioning, so the RAS is malfunctioned or both cerebral hemispheres are not functioning, or possible, possible all three of them are, are messed up. But as long as the RAS and one cerebral hemisphere is functioning, patient's going to be conscious. Both cerebral hemispheres are not, con are not working or the RAS is not functioning, patient will be unconscious. Moving on to the endocrine system. is made up of ductless glands that secrete hormones, to regulate body functions. Hormones are chemicals that affect numerous functions throughout the body. There's multiple, multiple hormones throughout the body. And that consists of several glands that have impact on growth, mental, emotional, physical, and sexual well-being. So endocrine glands. Penile gland produces melatonin, which affects reproductive system. Your thyroid gland helps regulate metabolism, growth, development, and activity of the nervous system. So patients that have hypothyroidism or poor functioning thyroid, they do not metabolize as well as somebody that has a normal working thyroid. Parathyroid, again, is also important for metabolism, calcium, phosphorus, and the bones. The adrenal glands, these are the ones that secrete epinephrine, which is the primary hormone secreted during, parasymp or during sympathetic nervous system. 
and norepinephrine, which is another hormone that is secreted as well. The gonads includes the ovaries or testes, uh, reproduction and sex characteristics of the patient. The islets of Langerhans, this is found in the pancreas and it produces insulin for the metabolism of sugars. So patients that have diabetes, they have a problem with insulin production. The pituitary gland regulates growth. And the thymus influences the development of maturation and, um, I'm sorry, of the immune system. <clears throat> and again, this just shows where those glands are kind of located throughout the body. Insulin is going to be a big one, again, especially once we get into diabetes. Epinephrine, the secretion of epinephrine is vital to understand as well. Knowing it's the sympathetic nervous system that's getting activated is important as well. Because there's a lot of conditions, because again, the body's going to be stressed if they have a medical emergency or a traumatic emergency going on. Body's going to be stressed, meaning epinephrine is going to get released. And there are a lot of conditions of some signs and symptoms that we see with certain conditions are directly explained because of the release of epinephrine. So if we see some of these conditions, we know, hey, epinephrine is getting released. Something is, could be seriously going on with the patient. And again, we'll talk more about that once we get into the different conditions. So again, and we'll talk more about epinephrine or epinephrine right now. So epinephrine, it is adrenaline. It, and norepinephrine are secreted by the adrenal glands. And again, these are the two hormones that are secreted by the sympathetic nervous system. So when your body gets in trouble or it gets stressed out, epinephrine, norepinephrine are getting released. And when epi, norepi is getting released, things that we're going to see in our patients, that's going to elevate their heart rate. So they're going to be tachycardic, fast heart rate. Increase in sweating, their skin's going to be sweating. Increase in blood pressure, pupil dilation, and increase in cardiac output. Cardiac output is referring to how much blood is circulating or how much blood the heart is pumping. Uh, in a minute. So again, all that's going to occur if epinephrine is getting secreted. The integumentary system separates the body from the outside environment, talking about the skin. Remember, the skin is the largest organ of the human body. So the functions of the skin, what does the skin do for us? Well, the primary thing, it's going to protect the body from the outside environment. It's going to help regulate temperature as well, but it's going to prevent invaders, allergens, infections, bacteria, and so forth from getting into our body. Again, they also help regulate our core temperature. It's that barrier between us and the outside environment. Very rich in nerves, serves as receptors for external stimulus. You can feel if you're getting hot, cold, somebody's touching you, pain, etc. They also aid in water and electrolyte balances as well. 
sodium chloride, we do this through sweating mainly. The different layers of the skin. We have the epidermis, which is the outermost layer of the skin. The epidermis is comprised of four layers of cells in which two of the outermost are actually dead and dying skin cells. The dermis is the middle layer, contains blood vessels, nerves, hair follicles, sweat glands, oil glands as well. And below the dermis, the deepest layer is the subcutaneous. Contains mostly fatty tissue, but may have nerves and blood vessels present as well. And when we talk about skin, especially the layers of the skin is going to be very vital once we start talking about burns. How we classify a burn by its depth is going to be dependent on which layers of skin are damaged by that burn. Just a picture of the skin. Again, our epidermis is that outermost layer. Again, the outermost layer of the epidermis is dead and dying skin. And then the dermis, that middle layer, hair follicles and so forth. And then we get that sub-Q layer. Again, mainly fat. Digestive system. Consists of the aliment, uh, alimentary tract and accessory organs. The alimentary tract is the passage through which food travels. So if the food's making contact with that on its way out of the body, it's part of that tract. The accessory organs that help prepare the food for digestion and for, to be used by the body, stomach, uh, it, and intestines are part of the alimentary tract, but the gallbladder, the liver, spleen, pancreas, those are all part of those accessory organs. Digestive systems functions to ingest and allow absorption of nutrients and through the elimination of waste. Again, major components of that digestive system. The digestive process, again, body's breaking down the food, absorbing its nutrients. It consists of two different processes to break down that food. You can have mechanical digestion. Includes chewing, swallowing, peristalsis. Peristalsis is the rhythmic, rhythmic movement of matter through the digestive tract and uh, defecation. So we're breaking down that food again and moving that food through mechanical, we're forcing that food through the system, we're chewing, breaking up that food, etc. You also have chemical digestion. This includes chemical processes in which enzymes, digestive juices, breaks down foods into simple components that can be absorbed by the body. So that starts with your saliva. Your saliva is going to help start immediately breaking down the food through chemical digestion. Once it hits that stomach, gets into that stomach acid. That's going to be chemical digestion as well. Urinary renal system. They filter, excrete waste to maintain balance of water and other substances. Main structures of the renal system. Main one is going to be the kidneys. 
They filter waste from the bloodstream, turn it into urine. You have two kidneys. Those two kidneys are going to be connected to the bladder through by the uh, ureters. So ureters carries urine from the kidney to the bladder. Urinary bladder, sole purpose is to store the urine until we're ready to get rid of it. And then you have the urethra that carries urine from the bladder to outside of the body. Patients that have urinary tract infections, it can be anywhere along, along this line. Typically, they start in the urethra, work their way upward. Again, just those renal cysts may have your kidneys, hard to see. You have your bladder, the ureters on each side of the bladder, and then you have the urethra that carries the urine to the outside environment. Reproductive system. Reproductive system consists of complementary organs that can function to accomplish human reproduction. Male sperm, female ovum contribute the genes that determine the hereditary characteristics of the offspring. Have a fertilized ovum, grows into a embryo, then it moves into a fetus, and then when it's born, it's a newborn baby. Male reproductive system can, consists of the testes that produce testosterone, duct systems, prostate gland, and the penis. Female reproductive system comprised of the ovaries. They produce estrogen, progesterone, The fallopian tubes, once that egg is released, should travel to the uterus through the fallopian tubes. The uterus, this is where the fetus will grow, develop. The vagina during birth. And their external genitalia as well. Again, more illustrations. Y'all are all college students. I shouldn't have to go into too much detail about different anatomy of the reproductive systems. All right, so moving on to medical terminology. And again, it's only a couple of slides and there's a whole semester long class for medical terminology. So it's a specialized language used in all fields of medicine and complex words can be simplified with a understanding of combining forms, suffixes, and prefixes. Combining form is the foundation of the word, give the word its essential meaning, contains a root, combining vowel that helps join the root to another word, part of it, to make it pronounceable. It's mouthful for basically saying that it's kind of a standardized language. It can have a prefix, suffix, combining form, and so forth. And if you can break down the word, even if you've never heard the word in your life, if you know what the different components of the word mean, you can probably piece together what they're trying to say. So again, we have the root word 
and how it may be displayed, slash, a combining valve, and then a hyphen. So let's just work on, worry about these down here. So the prefix, anytime you have a medical term that starts with, say, hypo, the hypo is that prefix. That means below normal. So the combining form will be VOL, meaning volume, and emic is the end of the word. That means blood. So hypovolemic is lower than normal blood volume. So hypovolemic means the patient's losing blood pertaining to below normal volume of blood. Makes sense how they, they come about. Hyper is the opposite of hypo. It means above normal. Glyc or glyco is glucose or sugar. And emia is a condition of the blood. So hyperglycemia is higher than normal blood glucose levels. So high blood sugar. A, at the start of a word, if you see A, that means without. P-N-E is breathing. And A, at the end of the word, is a condition. So apnea is the patient is not breathing. A, febrile means the patient is not febrile, meaning the patient does not have a fever. So anytime you hear that hard A in the front, A febrile, apneic, or whatever the case may be, that means without. Tachy means fast, cardio is heart, and IA is a condition, so tachycardia is a fast heart rate. Brady is slow, the opposite of tachy, E-N-P-N-E, is breathing, and A is a condition, so bradypnea means slower than normal breathing. Make sense? Clear as mud? You'll be learning medical terminology throughout the rest of your career if you stay in medicine. Again, some of these major prefixes, hypo, hyper, A, tachy, brady, you'll start getting those downs, and again, you can kind of start seeing uh, 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 consistencies and kind of help decipher what they're talking about. So knowledge of anatomy and physiology helps with the understanding of patient signs, symptoms, treatments EMTs provide. Anatomical terms and planes provide points of reference for describing assessment findings. Again, you need to understand those, those terms, those planes. And medical terminology is a specialized language shared by healthcare professionals. Okay, any questions on 